So we've been looking at the book of James together. Isn't that a great, isn't that a great book? You imagine that Martin Luther said the book of James should be tossed out of the Bible? He said it was a straw gospel that should be burned. You know, um, that comes from a misunderstanding of the book. Now, I'm not trying to say I'm smarter than Martin Luther. Martin Luther was in this, this time of this great uh, transformation of trying to understand from, uh, from being captivated by a religious system to try to say, no, it's about grace. And he couldn't look at it. But here's the deal. is He didn't understand that James was in the exact same time, kind of transition time, that he was in just centuries later. See, because um, James serves such an interesting and important role um, in our understanding of how to live out our Christianity. It really is, an, I think, an important, other than cutting it out and burning it, I think it ought to be, we ought to understand, wow, this book really has a specific message to us. You see, James lived in a time of great transition. Um, and he pastored in a time of great transition, like Martin Luther did. Um, James was a Jew, and they had a very strict, formalized form of, of religion and worship. And by reading what James writes here, and by studying church history, it's really obvious that he took his commitment to Judaism, to religion, really seriously, keeping rules, keeping regulations, following the law of, of his Jewish faith. That James was this really good, religious, devout man. And I would even say this, I would believe that probably the reason that he never was able to at first even understand that his half-brother Jesus was the promised Messiah was because of this religious mindset that he had. Jesus didn't fit his religious box. There's something to pay attention to there, because a lot of times God's doing something right around us, and we don't see it because it doesn't fit in our preconceived religious box. And for James, it wasn't until he witnessed the miracle of the resurrection. It says, remember, it says, Jesus appeared to the twelve, it says, and to James. So Jesus appears to him, and when he appears to him in, in his resurrect, this guy who saw his brother killed, now he's alive, that miracle, you know, did something to him. What it did is it smashed his religious box. And he kind of say, oh, wow, i got to see things differently than I have before. Um, but eventually he did believe. He came to believe, and he came to understand that his brother, half-brother Jesus, was in fact the Son of God, that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And he came to understand that to move forward with Jesus would take a big transition, a transition away from a life that was lived in this very clear-cut, defined religious box with all its do's and don'ts, and, and also get this, and its easy answers. There's one thing that religion will often give us as comforting, is just always easy answers. He understood because we just say, well, this is what our belief says. And, and he had to move away from that into something new. James is this transitional figure. He's this guy who, who um, moves from this mechanical religion of just doing certain things. He moves to... Let me still use the word religion, but to a genuine relational religion. A life lived from a heart transformed by this very real indwelling presence of Jesus within a person. And then the action or the do's and don'ts flowing from that transformation that's going on inside. James helps us then understand this needed transition 
um, more clearly as, as he writes to people who are also in the midst of trying to figure out how the, the difference between being Jewish, because he's writing to Jewish people, what's the difference between being Jewish and transition into this idea of Christianity, trying to figure out how to move from this mechanical box of religion to genuine relational religion. One author put it like this. He says, James helps people to understand that Jesus did not come to found a religion. He says the Old Testament Judaism was a religion, one that was ordained of God. From, for 1,500 years, the Hebrew people were called upon not only to adhere to the moral law, but also to observe the rituals laid down in the ceremonial law. They had feast days and fast days and Sabbaths. They had sacrifices and offerings. They had a tabernacle and then a temple. They had priests and Levites and robes and rules and rituals. All the paraphernalia of religion. And all of it was symbolic and pictorial. All what was pointing down the ages to when Jesus would come. And as author said, and getting caught up in that system and not being able to see beyond the system was very easy to happen. Just becoming religious was easy. But something happened. The religious boxes were shattered. Along comes Jesus. And through his life and his death and his resurrection, Jesus comes and he shatters their religious boxes. Jesus shows that Christianity is about following him, not about following rules. That Christianity is not a mere religion, rather it's a relationship, or say it this way, that Christianity is Jesus. Christianity is Christ. Um, the Apostle Paul was a, like James in this transition time. He's trying to, he's another religious man, he's trying to understand this, this transition, and, and Paul says this, he talks about the law, Paul says that was the law, this rule, this religious system, was a schoolmaster. To bring us to Christ. That religion served a purpose. It was all pointing forward to the Christ that would come. And he says that Christ alone lived the life that the law demanded. You ever think of that? The law was this great, all these demands. Jesus is the one who said, I'm the only one ever who can come and fulfill all those demands. He fulfilled all the types inherent in the rituals. All the types fulfilled in the law, he fulfills and he completes. The genius of Christianity lies in the fact that the Lord Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, doesn't give rules and regulations. Rather, he indwells the believer. And he lives his life in and through a person, which is way beyond religious do's and don'ts. See, Christianity isn't about keeping laws. It's about living from the place of a heart that has been transformed because Christ is in it. And then Christ is living his life through us. That's this transition time that James is writing about. So here's a question. Why start off today explaining Christianity from this, this idea, this idea from transition from, from religion to just this indwelling relationship? Why start by explaining how James is this key figure in moving people forward in this transition so that into this, from, from just duty to, to experiential relationship-based Christianity. Why? Because it's the lens that we have to look through today if we're going to properly understand the next couple verses that we're going to look at. Because the next couple verses are going to talk about religion. 
And we've got to understand what's, what he's saying and what he's not saying. So now you have your Bibles open. James chapter 1, we're going to look at two verses today. James chapter 1, let's look at verses 26 and 27. It says, anyone thinks himself to be religious. You're here this morning. You got up. You drove to church. Your neighbors would say you're religious. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. See, we need to see these verses through the lens that James intends. He wants to help people move past simple religious duty, which most of Judaism fell into. They didn't understand the fact that it was all symbolic and pictorial, pointing forward to the day Jesus would come and fulfill it, they just live by religious duty. But it's also not something we can just point back and go, yeah, those, those religious Jews didn't get it. Friends, many of you in here live the exact same way for much of your life, just by religious duty. I was a religious, dutiful person. We went to church twice a year, Christmas and Easter. But my parents sent me to confirmation. They baptized me when I was a baby. They sent me to confirmation class when I was 13 because we were fulfilling religious duty. Our duty was, this is what you do, you go twice a year. Sometimes if you weren't gone at the cabin for the weekend, you went another time or two. Went to Sunday school for some seasons of time because mom and dad didn't want to go to church, but I'd walk down the street and go to Sunday school at the Lutheran church down the road. So, a lot of people are have this... We can get trapped in just religiosity. We're hungry for something, but we're, like the Jews, we're trapped in a system, and we don't even understand the purpose of the system, and because of that, we just become religious. And he wants us to move past that into a life that we are lived, where we are motivated by Christ in us. Move from religious rules to having Jesus himself inspire and guide us by His indwelling Spirit. That our actions then become the results of changed hearts, not simply obedience to religious duty. So James does something here in this text. He points out three things, one negative, two positive. Three things to examine in our own lives to serve to help us see the effect that Jesus is or is not having Inside of us. Now, you know how sometimes there's a. Lately, even if you listen to the radio, you're listening to 620, and they'll say, We're going to give an Olympic update. And just they'll say, Just so you know in advance, we're going to tell you some results you don't know yet. So if you want to turn it off, turn it off. They're giving you a warning. Maybe these verses should come with that warning. They're saying, Because you might not want to listen, because sometimes we won't like what we hear, what James is saying. Now, you might love what you hear, I don't think it's in any way meant to be condemning. But it's revealing. You see, he's going to point out three things that we can look at to examine ourselves to see the effect of Jesus in us or to say, I don't see a lot of effect of Jesus inside of me. See, anyone can look religious on the outside. Anybody can fool anybody. And in what? Not even fool necessarily. Anybody can look religious and be religious on the outside. 
Billions of people today are religious on planet Earth. Mosques and temples and churches are packed with religious people. But Jesus came to give us something better than religion. And James here gives us some windows to look inside of ourselves to see the reality of Jesus in us or to see if we're still stuck in just external religion. The windows look in. So let's think about these three windows. The first window, he says, first window to our soul, he says, is our speech. It's the things that we say. What we say, the words you speak are a great revealer of what's really going on inside of you. Look at verse 26. It says, if anyone thinks himself to be religious... And he's using religion in a very positive sense there. Here's one of the things. We often use religion. We'll say, I'm not religious. I have a relationship. Well, James here uses religion positively. Because the structure that he's talking about is meant to have real purpose. You can fulfill the structure without understanding the purpose. Then it's just religion. But the structure itself can be really good because it can guide you into the relationship. So he says, if anyone here thinks himself to be religious in this positive self, healthy, Christ-indwelt religion... And yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart. This man's religion is worthless. Now it's interesting here. I can't think of anybody else in the scripture who uses this kind of thinking as often as James does. James expresses the same idea that he did back in verse 22, just a couple verses ago. This idea about the fact that we can be deceived or deluded. In verse 22 he talks about being deluded. Here he talks about being deceived. He's saying, listen, be careful. You could be deceived by just a religious framework and not really have the real thing. He's saying the possibility of religious deception is real. And I don't want you to get trapped in that. He's saying it especially as a Jew who lived in it himself. The trappings, he felt, well, I got it all right. But then lo and behold, his brother raises from the grave. And he goes, oh my goodness, my religion actually was keeping me from the truth. And that happens every day. So it's very interesting. He, does, he repeats the same idea again, this idea of, of being deluded or being deceived, deceived ourselves, of me not seeing me right, or me not seeing what I'm part of properly. He's concerned with us seeing ourselves honestly, seeing ourselves properly. Ultimately, he wants to see ourselves the way God sees us. So he says, look through this window. What do you see? What does your speech, what you say, say about the reality of Jesus' presence in your life? Now let's get something then, what he's not saying. He's not talking about how you talk to the pastor on Sunday morning. He's not talking about how you talk to your child's principal in a conference when you go to school. There's certain times that our talk is maybe not in line with what's really going on inside, where we weigh all our words very carefully. He's, he's thinking about this. He's asking, what comes out of your mouth when you are overtired and overwhelmed, or when you're hanging with your peeps? You still say peeps? No. <laughs> Spending time? We do, honey. We're, we're trendy still. When you're with your peer group, that is not your church group. And a lot of us, we should have peer groups that aren't church groups. 
One of the big problems in Christianity is people come to Christ, often they give, all, give away all their friends, relationships, and just spend time with Christians. We're not supposed to do that. You should still have a peer group, but here's the deal. When you're with the peer group, are you, you, do you still act and talk like the peer group? Think like the peer group. That's what he's wanting us to look at here. Because he's telling us something. He's saying, he's saying listen, I've got, I got a way for you to understand what's really going on inside of you. What do your words the things you speak in those situations reveal about your heart. Because he says our words are an outflow of our true life, our true heart. You see, he wasn't alone in thinking this. Jesus was dealing with this exact same thing one day with a group of very religious people. Remember, they are very religious. They were Pharisees. They were the ones who were keepers of the law. And who, they were saying this about Jesus. Jesus just cast out some demons and they're making accusations against Jesus and they say, listen, um, he casts out evil spirits by the prince of spirits. He's, he, has, he has access to the power of, the, of the, the king of demons. That's how he does this. Look what Jesus says to him. Matthew chapter 12. We've got a slide from Matthew chapter 12. It's a New Living Translation. I like the way, It's very clear the way it says it. Verses 33 to 37. Jesus' response to them is this. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. He's talking about consistency. For a tree is known by its fruit. Look at now. For those people who say, Jesus is this lamb carrying, always super cuddly and nice guy who never gets in see people's face. What are the next two words he calls the people? Yeah, brood of vipers. <laughs> he calls them a bunch of snakes. Verse 34. Brood of vipers. How can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good things. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure in his heart, brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it on the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now think about this. Because you could misunderstand what he's saying here. Is Jesus saying that simply saying good words could cause someone to be justified on judgment day before Jesus? And that someone simply saying bad or evil words that they will be condemned on judgment day before Jesus? No, it's not what he says. Take the whole thing together. Look what he says. He says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things or says good things. And the evil man, out of the evil treasure of his heart, brings forth evil things. You see, what comes out is the result. What comes out is the result of what's inside. What comes out is a revelation of what's on the inside. Our words will either confirm or betray the reality of Christ in us. How we speak will either confirm or betray the reality of Christ in us. So James says, what does he do? He says, bridle your tongue. It's imagery of a horse. Where this great big, you know, huge horse, 1,000, 1,500 pound horse, is controlled by a bridle, which is like a harness with a rope that goes around the horse's nose. And you can control it. It's speaking about controlling what you say. Evidence of Jesus in you is your desire and your ability to control what you say. 
Remember something, part of living the Spirit-filled life is that the fruit of the Spirit, one of the listed fruit of the Spirit is self-control. So a life lived in the reality of Jesus will result in an ever-growing desire and ability. Remember, it's process. It's a process. We don't, we're not just perfect. doesn't mean we don't ever slip up. But an ever-growing desire and ability to speak from the fountain of Christ within you, the fountain of love. That you will speak life and not death. You will speak scripture and not things of the world. That you will speak hope instead of hate. Those things all flow from the inside. Our words reveal the reality of our heart. And again, not so much just your words on Sunday morning. But your words when you smack your thumb with the hammer. And you know what? I'm, none of us is perfect in this, and I have a long ways to grow in every area of my life, but I'll never forget a time I was actually a pretty new believer, and I ended up with a gigantic, for you medical people, a gigantic cyst in my armpit. And I had no health insurance. And I had to go to the doctor. Dr. Sorensen. Anybody else? He was your childhood doctor, too. Anybody else have Dr. Sorensen from West Bend? Right there, right there, Dr. Sorensen. You know what Dr. Sorensen did for me to be nice? He laid down, he laid me on a table, he looked at it and he said, give no insurance because insurance it would cost more money to give me something to numb it. And he just said, lay down, hang on tight. And he took a scalpel and he cut my armpit open and it was like, he said it was like a clamshell in there and he took a pliers things and he peeled it out. And I am just Lay in there and I get done and I'm dying. There's tears rolling down my eyes. And he said, he, he looks at me with amazement. He said, I've never put someone in that much pain before and not have them curse. <laughs> and I was a pretty new believer. He had no idea what he just said to me. He just put me in the worst pain of my life. And, and nothing, nothing evil came out. And so what he's talking about here is not that if you hit your hammer, you don't say something you regret. I'm not saying that because I probably have at times. I've been mad at times and said something I shouldn't have said. But what is the desire and then the ability that's happening? Is there a, a movement in the right direction for the, that the words of your mouth are revealing the condition of your heart and what the words are revealing is life and love and hope in Christ? Paul looks and he says, here, look, here's a window to your soul. Look inside the window of yourself. This is for self-evaluation. Look inside the window of your soul and what do you see? Do you like what you see? So that's the first window that Paul says. And that's the, that's the negative one, in a sense. Let's move on to the second window. The second window that he says can, we can look inside our soul and see the condition of our soul is this. Look at, in, verse, in verse 27. It talks about this one. Helping the helpless and the marginalized. He says, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. Helping the helpless and the marginalized. Orphans and widows in James's day were the most helpless and most marginalized people in society. You've got to remember something. There was no social welfare program. You couldn't say, hey, I need, I need, um, I need wick to feed my kids and food stamps. I don't call it that anymore, but food stamps to, to feed my family and uh, I need rent assistance. And, uh, you know, by the way, we energy, we energy, you can't turn my electric off in the winter because it's cold. No such thing. Widows and orphans live on the street. 
most of the time. They, were, they had no hope really because the structure, the society, the way it was, they couldn't, the widow couldn't even hardly work, often couldn't work, usually sell themselves with the only way. And orphans had nobody. They were abused and they were mistreated and they were overlooked. Friends, one of the marks of early Christianity that set early Christianity apart was its concern for those who have been mistreated like this. Matter of fact, the early church in the book of Acts, almost in the beginning of the book of Acts, one of the first things, the first structural thing we see having to deal with, where it actually shows like administration, it was the first choosing of deacons in the church. Do you remember why they had to choose deacons in the church? It was to deal with the, what we'll call the widow problem. There were widows that the church was taking care of. They were providing for. They were giving food, so money so that they could eat. And um, there was discrepancy that some widows were getting overlooked because of their nationality. And so the church was addressing it. How can we deal with this? So the church has always understood its need to help those who are overlooked and marginalized and helpless. And the question is why? Why of all the things that James could, could say serve as a window into our soul... That would choose, because he doesn't say this, the window into your soul, he, what he doesn't say is, um, is a theology test. Isn't that interesting? That's what we would often say to ter- tell somebody how they're really doing. What do you believe? What do you know? James looks inside and said, I'll show you what you really believe and know by what you do. And James says that, that helping the widow and the orphan, the marginalized and the overlooked, why is this a thing that, that, to, to help us understand? Because it's a lot like... Jesus, it's the heart of God. It reveals the heart of God. I had a really interesting thing happen to me a few weeks ago on vacation. You know, we went on a, on a cruise in the Caribbean. And um, the thing about cruise, you ever been on a cruise ship? There are, um, on that ship, there are sort of probably 5,000 people. There's like 3,000 guests and 2,000 plus uh, people who work on the ship. So it's a floating city, half the size of Fort Washington. And that's not even a big one. And um, so the deal is you rarely see, you don't really get the, you're, you're so many people that you, you rarely run into anybody over and over again. Um, but we ran into this young couple, um, and we, we just loved them. In fact, it was really amazing. We actually sat next to them in this, this like dinner theater, and they said, could they sit by us? Because we were in kind of this round booth, there was more space. And we said, sure, go ahead and sit there. We started talking and found out he was a jazz pianist from Brazil, and that she uh, was immigrant from Romania, and they met and married in Dallas. And they're living in Dallas, nice young couple, and they had said something, I think Suzanne said, you know, um, are you married or something like that? And they're like, yeah, and they had just got married. So I talked about it, said, how long have you been married? And we told them almost 30 years. So they are asking us about marriage. The guy looks at us and goes, what's the secret? What's the secret? We want to learn. We want a good marriage. So we sat and talked about marriage. Well, ends up, we met them three different times. Matter of fact, we were getting ready to leave the ship. It's departure time. They get you all off as quick as they can. And we were sitting there just waiting because we didn't want to wait in line. And I, so we were talking. I said, I would love to run into that couple again. Like, you would never give somebody in a cruise ship your cabin number. There was no way of contacting them. You don't have cell phones. You know, so had no idea who they We knew they lived in Dallas. And he's from Brazil and she's from Romania. And I said, I got to go to the bathroom. I got up go to the bathroom and there he's standing there outside the bathroom waiting for his wife. It's like, oh, so we exchanged, we had cell phones then, so we exchanged numbers. But the second time we met, that was the third time, the second time we met them, what's the little island we got off in this, this uh, forget what, tiny little sand dune in the middle of the ocean. And 
Two cruise ships are parked. Remember that cruise ship? Look, it's a, sand, it's a sandbar in the middle of the ocean that they just find a way to make money at. There's two cruise ships parked in this thing. A huge concrete dock going out. Two cruise ships. So there's at least 3,000 guests on each ship. And when you get there, everybody just gets off the ship and goes there. So there's this massive beach, as far as you can see, with thousands of people on the beach. And Suzanne and I, because we're too cheap to pay for a chair and an umbrella, we had backpacks on and, a, and a, um, our towels in our backpack. And we walked a mile down the beach, almost to the end. We're kind of getting to the end, and she said, well, let's just... We'll throw our towels here and sit here for a while. We put our towels down. We sit down. We turn around. And the couple is right next to us. Out of 6,000 people, they're sitting there. And they're like, oh, my goodness. And he looks at me. In the beginning of our conversation, he says, you're a Christian, aren't you? First thing he says to me. And I'm thinking, well, how in the world? We're sitting in a comedy club, a nightclub thing. We're talking about marriage, and because they didn't know anything about them, actually we left. I said, oh, I should have said something about Jesus, but it was kind of like, are we going to offend them and push them away? And I said, why do you say I'm a Christian? And it came out like this. He goes, well, when they said they lived in Brazil and Romania, so I'm trying to strike up a conversation, I go, oh, Romania, that's near Moldova. So I've been to Moldova before. Why have you been to Moldova? Just trying to make a conversation. Well, we did this. And I said, I always say this when I tell people about traveling and missions. I never call it missions work. I always say humanitarian aid. Because most people have a very low view of missions. They, they think it's wrong. If they're not a believer, they have a very low view of it. They think you're going to convert people and force them to believe what you want. So I always say humanitarian work. So I said, oh, we were there doing humanitarian work. We were helping build an orphanage for girls coming out of school. I said, oh, Brazil. I said, I, I, I helped build a drug rehab center down in, in Honduras one time. That's not too far away, and we're talking about stuff. And, and he talked about traveling the world. I said, oh, we were here. We lived in Cambodia. Oh, did you do humanitarian work? You know, we helped an organization that did orphanages in schools, which is all true, you know. And he said, he said you know, I know why you're a Christian. He said, because what I've noticed, he's a kid, they've traveled, they've lived all over the world. He said, what I've noticed is that whenever a catastrophe happens in the world, the only ones who respond to it are, is the USA, who are mainly Christians, and Christian people in organizations from the USA. And he said, he goes, and it was interesting, he said, I've never seen an oil-rich Arab nation ever help anybody in distress. He said, but you Christian people, you guys help. And I said, well, I, I am a Christian. And we talked about it. Matter of fact, we're buying a book right now. We're going to send them. We got their contact information. We're going to send them a book on marriage. And, and told them, I said, someday I want him to come here and play the piano here. And you know what he said to me? And we could get together and we could talk. We said, we could talk about scripture. That's what he said to me now. Of course, he lives in Dallas. I'm like, you know, why don't you live in Grafton if I'm going to meet you, you know. But he uh, lives in Dallas. But anyways, he recognized Christianity not because of talking. We never talked theology. We talked about helping the most hurting and disenfranchised and overlooked people on the planet. Talked about going to, to Mexico and building houses for poor people. And for the people who don't have houses. And he recognized Jesus in the activity that was going on. He realized that the heart of God revealed by Christian, by Christian love towards the helpless and the marginalized authenticate, authenticated, authenticated Christianity. 
Because it reveals real love when you help marginalized and disenfranchised and hurting people because it costs the giver and there's no chance of repayment. It can only be motivated by love. Now that kind of sounds like someone else we know. His name is Jesus. Only motivated by love, he gave it all. So James says, do you want to see if there is some real reality to Jesus' transformation inside of you? Then look at how you treat the marginalized and the needy. You know what? And, and notice something here. And this is something I think I add it because it's so real for us. It's such a challenge for us in a place like we live in Ozaki County. He says, visit them. He says it goes beyond writing a check. It goes beyond, writing checks is great, but it goes beyond writing a check. It's about rolling up your sleeves and getting your hands dirty in the life of others in need. That's what he says is a revelation. It actually says you visit them or you get involved. James says that's one of the primary marks of religion that is pure and undefiled in the sight of God. And so he started off by saying, don't be deceived. So let's not let ourselves be deceived. Let's look inside and say, do I see a heart that motivates me towards doing this in my life? If I do, I go, yes. If I do, don't, I go, what's wrong? That's the second window. Let's look at the third window. The third window that we can look into to see if there is really a reality to our life with Christ or if maybe we are just deceiving ourselves a bit, he says, is, is living holy lives. James says it like this. Um, Keep oneself unstained by the world. In other words, not allowing the value system and the activities of the world that the world has contaminate. He says unstained. So don't let it contaminate us by participating with it and in it. So understand something, friends. Christianity does expect right behavior. It leads to right behavior. Holy living is the intended result of those who walk with Jesus. Scripture says we are to live in the world. Matter of fact, this was Jesus' prayer at the end of his ministry for all disciples that would follow, that they would live in the world but not be of the world. And that speaks to us because it says we are not to isolate and hide and run away. From the world, he says we're to engage with the world, but we are to be unstained by the world. And here's the deal. Jesus is strong enough to help you do that. If Christ is in you, you can live in, you can live in a garbage dump and not eat garbage. You can do it because Christ in you. But let's let the order right. Dead religion is about trying to live a holy life or a life of rules and regulations, which can be good, by keeping a whole bunch of do's and don'ts through self-effort. Try harder. Matter of fact, a lot of times people misunderstand the gospel completely, and what they really say it is is just try harder to do away with some external behavior. Don't get me wrong, doing away with those external behaviors that are bad um, is good and proper. However, Christianity is deeper than that. Christianity is about its internal transformation that results in you wanting to do what's right and not wanting to do what's wrong. And that's why this boils down to an internal evaluation because no one but you knows what you want. 
It's about what your wanting wants. Religion is external, but Christianity is internal. And Christianity will change your wanting on the inside. Now then, doesn't this make sense? If when I come to Jesus, He actually, according to Scriptures, indwells me, He lives inside of me, and Christian maturity is the process of partnering with the activity of the Holy Spirit within me to transform me from the inside out, from my old self, into Christ-likeness, then from the inside, I will want to live according to what's going on inside of me. I will want to live holy. Now notice, this doesn't say you won't struggle and you won't wrestle with sin. And I would say this, quite the contrary. Because there is an internal desire to live holy within the child of God, because Jesus is in you, then there will be a struggle. The struggle will be more noticeable. You will want to change. And that takes struggle. The struggle is part of the evidence of the reality of Christ in you. And then overcoming the struggle is part of the evidence of Christ dwelling in you. Friends, the problem lies when there's little or no struggle. When you can look into the window, you can look at yourself and realize there's no real struggle. The only thing I want to do is I keep these rules to make other people happy. Well, my church says I have to do this, or my spouse says I should be this way. So I keep these external rules. But if I do a self-evaluation, I look inside, there's really not a whole lot of struggle going on. That's a revelation that something's probably not so right. I'm maybe trapped in religion, but don't understand the reality of a relationship. You see, if you can live a divided life, and Paul talks about that earlier. Remember when he talked about getting wisdom? He said, you can just ask for wisdom, except if you live a divided life. We looked at that a few weeks ago, talking about, he said, you're like a ship tossed in the sea. He said, it's a life that's it's double-souled, is what the word really means. He means you really have one, one foot in the world and one foot with Jesus, and you really haven't made a commitment either way. He said, you're double-minded, double-souled. You're not really all in with Jesus. That's what he's talking about here. You can live a, you can live a divided life. If you can do that, you're one way around your church peeps, Another way around your other peeps. I do that just to make you guys mad. <laughs> James says if that's true, you should take a serious look at your spiritual condition and say, am I, really, am I really tracking with Jesus? Have I really invited him in, in here? Or am I just doing some things out here? Maybe to satisfy somewhere else. Maybe just to make myself feel good. Or maybe I just don't know any better. If you think Christianity is just about keeping some rules, that means you're missing, you're missing it. God loves you and He wants to dwell inside of you. He wants you to say, come on in, Lord, take control. And he wants, to, he wants to help you be transformed on the inside, changing unforgiveness to forgiveness and hate to love and, and, uh, and worry for hope and, 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 and trust. He wants to do this incredible internal work inside of you. And Paul or James is saying here, here you can look inside and see if that work is going on. Some of these things are revealers of that. So three windows into our souls that can reveal the reality of our lives in Christ or reveal that we are just living by kind of empty religion. The words we speak because they flow from the inside. The love for hurting and abused, because it's, it's, it's love like Jesus has, and holy living, because it's saying, 
the Christ in me is saying, I want, I'm uncomfortable with this. I want to spread my influence in you, which means some of these things have to go away. The question we ask today is, as we look through these windows, what do we see? Maybe the best way we could end today, and it's plenty early, the best way we could end today is by taking just some time to ask God to help us see ourselves clearly through these three portholes. You can find a place to pray. You can come to the front. You can sit in your seat. You do whatever you want. And just say, Lord, help me. to. What do my words say? What do my engagement with the hurting and abuse say? What does my holy living or non-holy living say? And you might want to say, God, what I see, thank you, God. I've seen all this progress. Or you might say, God, if I'm honest, I got a shell out here, but inside it's not looking so good. And of course it's transition period, but you're saying, God, where I am today is not where I want to be tomorrow. And God help me. Maybe you're here today. You've just been trying really hard to keep the rules. Really hard. All you've ever known, all you thought Christianity was about a religion. Get up, go to church, sing some song, put in a tip. The idea of giving first and the best makes no sense to you. And you're just tired of trying and you're empty because external religion doesn't fill you up on the inside. You're empty inside. And you're ready to turn to Jesus. You're ready to ask Him to come into your life and to fill that hole that's within you. Begin this transforming work within you. He offers that to you. Today you can invite Him in. Let's stand together this morning. Let's Let's think about that for a moment, what I just said. That you could be empty inside and you know it. And you're ready. You say, I, I'm tired of this life. I'm tired of trying. I'm, trying to, I'm tired of keeping up appearances. I need a fullness on the inside. And I'm ready to finally say, Lord, I'm all in. I'm tired of maybe even being that double-minded. Paul talked about being double-minded, being double-souled. Kind of saying, I'm not really all in with the world and I'm not really all in with Jesus. In some settings, I talk like I'm all in with Jesus. In other settings, it's obvious I'm not. The thing about Christianity is it's, a, it's an all-in endeavor. It's no halfway with it. You're either in or you're not. You either say, Jesus, you're Lord of my life and you're, and you're my ruler, or, you're, or, or He's not. That you are, and he, he isn't. This morning, I just want to let's close our eyes. Just close our eyes and have a private moment for just a moment as we, as we wrap up. Maybe you're here today, and as you've been doing some self evaluation for the last 30 minutes, you're looking into these portals of your soul. And something's coming to your mind. You're like, you know what? I've been maybe trapped by religion. I've been trying really hard. But the reality is what I see on the inside is not what I think I'm supposed to see. But what I want to see is Jesus in me. You know what? I'm ready. I'm ready to go all in. I'm, I'm ready to say yes to Jesus. I'm all in with you. And you don't even know what that all entails yet. But you know it's the first step. That I'm all in. I need Jesus in my life. 
today you're saying, Pastor Mark, I want to respond to Christ. Well, I want to give you the opportunity to respond. Maybe it's your first time with us at Portview. Maybe you've been here every service for 30 years. It doesn't matter. James was, James was this good religious man for most of his life, and all of a sudden, he realized his brothers